So the polar stuff is a lot more physical um, and mental as well in the sense that it's just so it's just relentless like it's absolutely just relentless and I mean certainly once you get into the very cold environments like up in, in the North Pole and stuff it, it's just a different it, it's such a different animal I mean it's very hard to explain it to people how difficult it is I will never forget it the first time that we went up there getting off the plane and just standing there and like within 15 minutes the plane is gone and you're looking at the plane taking off and you're going what am I after doing This is the Hardest Nails podcast brought to you by Islands Adventure Magazine, Outsider.ie. My name is Kevin and thank you for taking the time to join us on our 24th episode, which is supported by Follow the Camino, the original walking holiday experts. Follow the Camino has been helping pilgrims to walk, horse ride, cycle, all along the famous Camino de Santiago pilgrimage routes in Spain for over a decade now. Airport transfers, the very best accommodation, meals and luggage transfers, it's all taken care of with their custom itinerary created just for you so that all you need to do is enjoy your adventure to the fullest go visit their website www.followthecamino.com well you are about to hear from an absolute legend an internationally regarded adventurer who has spent the better part of the past 30 years chasing one adventure to the next and enjoying some truly unbelievable experiences all around the world be it climbing hiking tracking skiing or paragliding he's done and seen things we can only ever dream of many of his amazing tales have come while on the ice project which is a mission to track over the earth's eight ice caps and to top it all off he's also a heights and rescue consultant and has worked on a varied selection of projects as well as internationally acclaimed movies it's our greatest honor to have mike o'shea on the hardest nails podcast mike we're so grateful to have you join us to share with our listeners some of the incredible moments you have experienced over the years okay thank you very much for taking the time to interview me it is only our pleasure now mike first of all having a guest of of your caliber on this podcast it's it's difficult to know where to actually start you know what question to ask first but i think the best place to start would be when you were 13 years old just to give an idea of where your adventurous spirit and the way of life came from as a young teenager you were already climbing mountains at that stage did you find that at that age you were different to most of the kids you were growing up with and what was it about the outdoors and the mountains that that attracted you to begin with uh, yeah i kind of had, was i suppose I had a lot of luck in some sense i actually i grew up in in a lot of my younger years in killarney a, a little town but when my grandparents died we moved to a little village called Beaufort, which is just near Carantool, the highest mountain in Ireland, and that area. And I moved out there when I was about 11 and a half that way. And I just, you know, I was, I was like a normal Irish kid in the sense that I was just basically into Gaelic football. We our own version of Irish football. Um, I was into Gaelic football and running and doing all of those kind of things. And then I, I think where the big change for me was when I joined the, I joined the youth club in Beaufort um, when I was 13. And that's really where, you know, we started doing bits of walking and we started doing different things. And, you know, it was, it was, I, I think it's very different times now in the sense so, you know, we used to do a lot of things like helping old folks and cutting timber and cleaning their house and stuff like that. And then this opportunity came up to go to Cap and Lee, which is an outdoor adventure center, which is quite close to us. And 
one of the the team leaders in in the um, youth club um, was big into climbing, and myself and, and another guy called Roy Gabbett had been hounding this guy for years to bring us climbing. Mm-hmm. And you know, he we eventually got to the outdoor centre, and it was actually quite interesting. It, my 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 first introduction to rock climbing was was was, was, was uh, as I look back now, I call it hard love. Um, and I don't think the guy was too enthusiastic to bring us climbing. <laughs> and he brought us to a thing called Burke's Folly. I'll never forget the name. I forget lots of things, but I'll never forget this name. It's called Burke's Folly. And it's a cliff at the, at the outer center. And this is more like the intermediate cliff at the, at the center. There's a little rock that they bring everybody to. But he brought myself and the other guy to this. Mm. And he showed us how to set up a belay once for an abseil. Yeah. And then he ripped it apart and he told us to set it up. <laughs> <laughs> and we we're kind of standing there going, huh? <laughs> and uh, we had a good go at it, and we managed to actually put it back together in some shape or form that was good enough to abseil off. Mm-hmm. And before I knew it, I was abseiling down this cliff and then climbing back up it. And for me, I think it just ticked an awful lot of boxes at the time for me. One is I, I get a great kick out of the technical side of climbing and the technical side of rescue and stuff like that. I just love the rope work and, and just figuring out things and how to do things. So, mm. you know, it, it, that was one part of it that ticked the box. The second part was a kind of little bit of adventure and the unknown of going over the edge for the first time and then mm. climbing back up and, you know, just using your own strength and your own, your own skills and your knowledge. Um, and, and whatever perception at the time to see how do I do this and how can I figure this out and you know if I do this does it what happens you know mm. and it was that kind of got me into climbing and I, I just started from there um, we obviously did a good job in that he brought us climbing an awful lot after that and very soon by the time I was 14 I'd already joined Kerry Mountain Rescue and like Kerry Mountain Rescue in our area were, were you know a, a fantastic organization they set up in 1966 and um, but just to get into that whole scene and, you know, I've always had the attitude, even at a young age, is if you want to be good at something, you've got to go with the people that do this stuff regularly, you know. Mm. And so I joined the mountain rescue team and, you know, started learning how to navigate properly, how to, you know, what equipment to bring with you, learning how to climb and then learning how to do rescues, like the rope work for rescues and, you know, stretchers. And, and it's like by the time I was 14, I was already doing rescues. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it just kind of, it's it just kind of snowballed from there over the years, really. Mm-hmm. I think um, the rope, rope work part of my life has become a huge part of my life in the sense that I just got such a kick out of that and just the technical aspect of it and stuff, which has brought me on to doing rope, a lot of rope access work. And okay. obviously, like, you know, it's, it's, it's brought me into a lot of different spheres in life, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, you're busy describing there, Mike, the moment that pretty much kick-started it all for you. I'm wondering, though, was there ever a plan B in terms of a career for you or was being an adventurer? going on on massive expeditions was that the one and only plan no it wasn't it was funny <laughs> when i was when i was younger i mean it was the 80s in in ireland so things were pretty tough here at the time you know it was it was pretty tough and mm. and my mother my, my father had died when i was quite young so my mother was a widow so i mean uh, yeah it was a pretty uh it was a fairly frugal upbringing let's put it that way you know mm. um and yeah, I, I, you know, we didn't have the money for holidays. We didn't have the money for the cinema and stuff like that. Like, so, I mean, from a career point of view, it was funny. My first thing I wanted to be was actually a blacksmith. Um, 
but there was only there was no jobs really in it, so that kind of went it went by the wayside. And then I decided by that time I was kind of fourteen, I decided I actually wanted to be a chef. Mm-hmm. And then I got a job for a summer in the in the Gleagle Hotel in Killarney, which is owned by good friends of mine now. I got a job there for the summer as a pot walloper working in the kitchen, and I decided that wasn't for me <laughs> um, fairly quickly. Um, and then I was in school, and there was there's, um, in, in Killarney, there's um, a company called Libra Container Cranes, and they advertise for apprenticeships. And um, I went for an apprenticeship there, so like, but my trade is like a fitter or, or, or mechanical craft engineer. So I spent five years doing that from when I was 16 till I was 21 and what happened in the finish really was is that I was taking so much time off like the the company were brilliant because when I I went to the Alps for the first time when I was 17 years of age Mm. and I basically approached the company and said look I need to take six weeks off um is this possible, you know? And they supported it, which was amazing. And then for every year after that, I was going to the Alps for six and eight weeks during the summertime. And then I was taking my, my and I was just not getting paid. And then I was taking my holidays the rest of the time. And even things like that, my, our first trip to the Himalayas in 1991, I mean, the company, you know, really, you know, they supported that whole idea of, of just me going off doing these things. So, I mean, I got two months off work um, to go off and do that. But I had got to the stage kind of, September kind of 91 where I had actually was taking so much time off work Mm -hmm. that I actually had a chat with myself rather than the company doing it and said I just uh, I can't keep doing this and then um, I basically stepped out of that business to to get involved in in running a um, outdoor walking company so we were basically taking a lot of Americans and French and stuff like that um, walking but it was an interesting time in the sense that you know it was obviously a fledgling fledgling business at the time here in Ireland there wasn't many people doing it and trying to market and get the funds together for marketing before the internet was a very different animal you know um but like then you know needs needs create different things at the time there was lots of European grants here for sheep farmers Mm -hmm. for for lambs so basically for almost two full winters you know, we survived off rescuing sheep. Mm, wow. Like, we had no money for the winter. You'd get make loads of money in the summertime, but not loads, but you'd make a nice bit. But in the winter, we used to actually go rescuing sheep for farmers. And that's actually what we did most of the winter for basically four months of the winter was rescuing mm-hmm. sheep for farmers. And that kind of got us through the first few years until the business was established. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, and I've just kind of moved through the business business from there, you know. Mm, amazing. And the ventures from there, they, they kept racking up and uh, you went and saw some amazing places that, that our listeners I will only ever get to see via pictures and videos and that led up to the point in 2012 now you and a fellow adventurer Claire O'Leary you began a series of expeditions called the ice project as I mentioned at the start that's aiming to cross all of the world's major ice caps now before we chat about some of those adventures Mike could Mm -hmm. you list the eight caps for our listeners who might not be familiar with all of them well what we're trying to cross like the the, the aim is is obviously is is one is obviously the North Pole, which we've had a couple of attempts at, which didn't go very well a few times. <laughs> um, obviously, the South Pole, um, Greenland, uh, we've got Greenland, and then the rest of the stuff is, is a mix of ice caps around the place. There's obviously the one in Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um, we did Lake Baikal in, in Siberia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's basically basically taking the biggest lumps of ice that we can find. Yeah. Um, there's, there's two on Kilimanjaro. I've done one of them. I want to try and do the other one now. It's very small, obviously, in the terms, but it does qualify as ice caps, but it's okay. at 19,500 feet, like, so mm-hmm. it's, or just over 19,000 feet. So it's a different animal altogether to try and, try and you know, work on ice up there. Um, and it's really looking at 
those. There's a few other kind of projects I've got in the background, which are, which I won't, I won't give names of now, but there are a couple of fairly big lumps of ice that haven't been crossed yet. Um, and it's just, yeah, I suppose, look, it, the whole ice project came about because I suppose we had done every time we do an expedition. Mm. The problem always was is that you were remarketing an expedition. You were trying to, to create a new vibe of excitement, you know, new, new, new uh, sponsorship materials, mm. new websites, new logos, new this. And it was just getting so expensive because, I mean, the trips are expensive enough mm. um, in themselves to do. But you also, like running bigger expeditions is almost like having to run a business in the sense that, you know, you've got to do marketing, you've got to do media, you've got to do a whole load of things mm. just to get there before you ever start, you know. <laughs> And th- that was the whole concept of the ICE project was to actually just bring bring a whole series of projects of, of expeditions together into one project and and go from there. And what's been quite interesting to watch since then is that is is that I, I I'm not sure to take it as a compliment or not, but I presume it's a compliment. But there's quite a few of the of the high profile adventurers around the world are actually doing the same thing now. In that oh, wow. you know there's a project called the ICE Legacy, and there's a few <laughs> different ones now where people are are basically you know taking that idea yeah. and utilizing it because it, it makes sense because it's just like like you know I'm into adventure mm. and I want to be out doing these things but like the cost of trying to do it and especially based in Ireland because I mean you just don't have the sponsorship basis here you know mm. um, which makes it very difficult so you know trying to plan to keep your, your overhead and your cost down to get things organized and then to actually try and get your funds in place to, to do the expedition mm. um, yeah it's just a whole other world like you know so you end up having to be it almost have to turn it into a business to mm. make it make it work on the bigger trips you know yeah well I want to spend a bit more time on the North Pole expeditions you attempted if, if, if yeah. you don't mind but but before we speak about that let, let's first look at that 19 day crossing of Northern Patagonia Icefield you, you didn't really touch on that and I, I'm glad you didn't because now you get yeah. to you and Claire you <laughs> completed that uh, late 2013 to become the first yeah. Irish team to do so so it seems as though from what I've seen that uh, the way of life out there it's uh, pretty relaxed laid back and i can imagine that could be quite frustrating at times when you have a planned out schedule a period of time in order for the expedition to be completed what stood out the most for you though mike during that track i suppose there's a number of things first of all the track kind of ticked a huge amount of boxes for me in the sense that it was a real proper adventure in the sense you you, you got to get down to patagonia first then you travel by car mm-hmm. then you travel by boat up some lakes and some rivers then you got a horse ride for two days <laughs> Then you've got to start, you know, ferrying your equipment back and forward to get up onto the ice cap. Then you actually try and cross the ice cap, and then you've got to get off the other side. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I suppose the interesting point you made there is just the whole relaxed, you know, we're obviously on, on you know, we've got a flight, flight in and a flight back out at the back end, you know. <laughs> yeah. And to get out at the other end of the glacier, because it's just so remote there, you have to either book a boat or... Uh, usually you book a boat to get out of there um, because there's no roads, there's no access in that area. Um, and, like, yeah, our first day, I mean, we drove down, everything was organized, we were going to load the boat and, you know, we were going to get up and then, you know, cook our dinner, camp and cook our dinners and then start riding the next morning. I mean, we got, we meet, we meet this gaucho and, you know, he's lying on the grass beside the lake, you know, with a piece of grass in his mouth and a cigarette in his hand. <laughs> and uh, he basically tells us, uh, my dinner's ready in an hour, so we're not going anywhere. It's like, we're going, huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> so it was like, okay. It's a little bit of frustration there. But I, I think the problem for us is, I suppose, we just 
come from, you know, we come out of a, uh, a world that's so based around time, you know, I've got to be at work at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock, I've got to have lunch at 1 o'clock, I've got to do this, this and this, so we're all, we're, I think we're all just on this, you know, really fast time scale the whole time, you know, mm-hmm. and then you step into that world and it definitely, you know, they're not going to adjust to us, so we have to adjust to them and mm-hmm. it's quite funny, even the next morning, like he's down at 6 o'clock, he loads up the boat and we transport all the gear up, I mean, I, I mean, the boat was just full up over the top of it and then we just sit up on top of everything and we're kind of looking at this boat going, is this actually going to carry all of us, you know, and he brings the, the wife and he brings the son and he brings the dog <laughs> and you're kind of going, oh man, this is not right and you know, we travel up into, up, up these lakes and up these rivers and just, I mean, the scenery down in Patagonia, I, I, I do think it's one of the most beautiful parts of the world for sure and so untouched and like we get to, to their little, like their summer camp where they're, they've got a hut and they've got pens and stuff like that. And we all load out the gear and we're looking around where are the horses. There's not a sign of a horse to be seen anywhere. So we're kind of asking where are the horses and they're going, oh, we're going to collect them. Mm-hmm. And like about an hour later, no one still moved. <laughs> a guy turns up on a horse and he heads off with, with the other guy. And as we discover afterwards, like they basically the horses are, they've got a piece of rope between their front leg and their back leg, kind mm-hmm. of a tethering system. So they can't go very far. Mm-hmm. But they leave them off grazing wild because there's no fields, there's no paddocks, there's no nothing. So they, they leave them off wild. So like four hours later, they turn back up with the horses, you know. Yeah. And then we've got to have something to eat. And then we could load up the horses and then we move. And even the next morning, it was the same thing. Like they left the horses off for the night to find whatever feed they could get. And then we repeat the process. So I think sometimes you've just got to get into your head about that whole thing of just slowing down and... Mm. And maybe just, yeah, it's very hard because we were all on timescales and there's a plane at the back end. And, you know, there was some really big, like we hit, we got some really, really big storms in Patagonia and the wind and stuff there was just horrific. Like, um, mm. And I think that's probably one of the things that stands out most is just the, the ferocity of the storms there. It's just horrific. I mean, Mike Barry, who's from Tralee, is... Um, he was on the first Irish expedition at that time with Dawson Stelfox, and he's the first Irish guy to walk to the South Pole. I mean, it was very funny. I remember him just saying, it's a real Kerry saying, he said, watch the wind, lad. <laughs> in, other words, <laughs> in other words, bad match is down, it's coming. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was, you know that, was, that was quite interesting in the sense of that. Yeah. You know, I mean, but it's interesting, you know, just like just expanding on that topic of just, you know, we went to Lake Baikal, and there's something that stands out from this whole thing of just fitting in with the community. And I remember we were in Lake Baikal, and it was all about purity, and it was about we're going to start at the bottom of the lake, we're going to go to the very top of the lake, we're going to get no assistance, we're not going to help, you know, we're going to do this real pure, okay? Mm. And then it was quite funny in the sense that we'd, we'd probably on the ice, I'd say, about four or five days, and you come up by a town called Irkutsk, mm-hmm. and there's a guy out skating on the ice, and he comes up and he's talking to us, and he said, oh, so where, what villages are you seeing, and what are you going to do this, and where are you doing this? And I said, oh, we're, we're not going to do any villages. Mm. And, and the guy was in shock. And it was actually, he was looking at me going, what? And he said, you're not going to meet the people. Or you're not going to, you know, you're not going to participate in the community. You're not going to, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was actually, he skated off when he was gone. And, you know, you're, you're in your skates, uh, your skis and your skates all day. And you're kind of like, you know, thinking all day. And I was just thinking, to, you know, I was just kind of thinking to myself. And I remember talking to Claire about it. It's like, actually, yeah. We're, you know, we're going to be passing villages and, you know, different inhabitations and stuff on the way. Mm-hmm. And because we've got this thing in our head to be totally purist, we're actually not going to meet the people and we're not going to see the stuff on the side of the lake, you know. Mm. And, you know, it, just, it actually just changed our mind about what we were doing. It was like, yeah, okay, we can still walk the lake, okay. We can still, you know, stop and visit people and see things without 
um, you know, experience the trip, but also experience the people and the country, which for me, I think, I mean, a huge part of, of the traveling is, yeah. you know, the journey is obviously very important in a lot of ways, but I mean, it's the people you're going on a trip with and then the people you meet on the trip and, mm. you know, and your interactions with them. And, you know, we had some, we had, you know, that's, I think that's the memories over the years. It's never about the purity of the trip necessarily. It's about the memories are always about something that happened or the people you met or, you know, something that they did for you or something like that. You know? mm. So it's, yeah, I think I think sometimes we can get... I think there's a pressure on for people in expeditions to, you know, do the next thing that somebody else hasn't done, and you've got to do this, that, and the other from a sponsorship point of view to make mm-hmm. it the first or to make it this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes I think, you know, it's at a cost to your trip and the enjoyment of it as well because you're trying to to do... Just because someone's already done it doesn't mean that you can't do it again, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've now created this thing, I, I think it's just this thing where, you know, you can't do it the same way somebody else has done it. You've now got to do it a different way, but it's like... If you're walking from point A to point B, what can you do a whole lot different a lot of the time, you know? So, yeah, it's interesting. Very, very true. Well, just a few months before Patagonia, you and Claire walked the length of the frozen lake there in Siberia. And also in the same year, you crossed southern Kilimanjaro ice cap. And two years later, you both crossed the Greenland ice cap from the west to the east using dogs. Now, to do these adventures... Do they have more similarities than we might think? And uh, how would you compare them in terms of the physical toughness it took to complete each one of them? I, I suppose they're all different in their own way. And mm-hmm. they're always going to be tough. I mean, look, there's always easy days and there's always hard days. Um, uh, I suppose in the amount of it is preparation, uh, both physically and mentally. I mean, certainly, you know, for for a lot of my like I mean Claire's Claire's a very intense person in training and, and has done a huge amount of stuff and, and, and still continues to do it. Mm-hmm. Um for me I'm excuse the terminology a very lazy person. <laughs> if I'm going somewhere I'll train. If I'm not I don't. It's kind of a bit like that. Um I think it's just different for everyone. I mean for me I certainly did a lot of tire pulling and stuff like that and and the trips are very different. I mean like by Cal is a classic example. I mean Pulling tires and walking up hills is a lot of training that we would do, okay? Mm-hmm. But what was quite funny before we went to Baikal is we basically went for a walk. I'll never forget this. We went for a walk on the flat mm-hmm. for about 10 miles. And the pains in my hips and my legs and my knees the next day, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Whereas I could go, at the time I was my level of fitness, I could walk uphill or drag a tire for six hours. Mm-hmm. Set of tires for six hours, no problem. And I could walk up a hill and it would take, knock nothing off me. But walking on the flat, I wasn't used to it. <laughs> and I hadn't trained for it. So it was actually something over a very, in a short space of time, mm-hmm. was to start training on the flat instead of training up and down hills. Because mm-hmm. we were training up and down hills, you know, and you're building huge power. But you're, you're actually using slightly different muscles once you change the angle. Yeah. Um, and that was interesting. And I mean... Like with Baikal, the funny like Baikal came up with a very short notice. We were supposed to be going to to North Pole that year, mm-hmm. but there was a huge crack. There was a massive storm up there, and there was a crack basically over eight hundred kilometers long, went straight through the ice, and the ice just broke up all over the place. So mm-hmm. we had the time kind of booked off to be somewhere. So Lake Baikal was kind of Claire's idea and came up at very short notice, you know. Um, but like it's called the Black Li- Black Ice Lake, mm-hmm. and this is back down to just figuring things out. So. You know, the idea is that, you know, there's lots of ice in it, so you can actually skate on it. Um, now, at the time, um, I was up doing a job at Kilkenny on ice, um, a zip line system, and I put on a set of skates, and I'm not joking, I was on the ice for 15 minutes, I come off and I went, oh, Jesus Christ, I'm not going to be able to do this at all. Mm. And Claire went down to Cork on ice and actually fell and hurt her wrist. And mm. 
it was kind of like Jesus, we're never going to be able to do this. But I was, I was, I'm, I'm kind of my nature is to observe. I'm, I, I'm a great observer. I think I would say it myself. Other people might say something else, but I would say it's one of the things I'm good at. But I was standing watching the kids learning to skate. I was going, I wish I could do like the kids. And then there was other kids came up with the little, you know, the little penguins mm-hmm. that they have for yeah. skating, and the kids are on the skates. And I was going. Actually, that's a really good idea. Mm. So there was a guy up in Finland that was making sleds for us, especially for the lake, with um, a ski base on them, a special ski base on them, so they'd slide easier mm. um, on the ice and the snow. And um, so I rang him up, and I've nicknamed it the paddy handle. I got your man to design a removable handle <laughs> that we could put on the back of the sleds. Mm. And then so we went via Finland to to get the sleds and to get skates and skis off this guy mm. and we got a kind of um a, 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 like a two-hour quickfire lesson on ice skating mm. um and then we obviously went to the lake and the first week on the lake was just all snow um and then we started hitting some ice patches it was great and it was amazing we were we were someday skating over 40 kilometers wow and that's because we could use the paddy handle. Mm. So we could basically have the sled in front of us. You could lean on the handle and you could skate all day long. You could skate all day long. No, well, no, the, the biggest problem is to say skate all long. Let me put it this way. Again, it's back to muscles. Is mm. Basically, I could skate for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay, I could probably stay going all day, but I could skate for 20 minutes and my feet were just murdered. Mm. And I'd have to stop and sit down and then get back up again and take off again. Like, so it was kind of 20-minute runs and then sit down and give your feet a rest and then go again, you know. Um, mm. But we were getting up to, you know, on the good days, we were getting up to 40k on ice oh, skating, geez. which is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you put me on an ice rink, I can't skate around it at all. So, you know, these are the things that bring back memories to me in the sense that, you know, it's, it's, this was a new trip that came in front of us, and yeah. we had to figure out a way to make the trip work for us. Now, we could have walked it, but, mm. you know, the fact that you could skate on it, it was something I certainly wanted to try, you know. Mm. Um, and it just, you know, it made the trip a, a very, very different trip. So, yeah, I, I, that's a great part of the trip for me is, is coming up, you know, with these ideas and coming yeah. up with different solutions and stuff, you know. So I get a kick out of that, you know. <laughs> well, you mentioned there, obviously, the fitness, uh, the, the training for uh, the, the expedition. I'm interested to know, though, Mike, when you're doing the training, is it just for fitness or are you also practicing skills, techniques? And also, how long in advance before an expedition do you start uh, your training? Um, it all depends, I suppose, on the trip you're going on. I mean, Certainly, the any of the bigger trips, uh, you, I definitely you'd be trying to keep a reasonable level of fitness overall, um, walking or cycling or whatever. But I mean, certainly the tire dragging and stuff, probably six months, maybe up to a year before some of the big trips. Mm. Um, you know, if you're going to be hauling, it depends what you're going to be hauling. But I mean, most of the trips now, on any sort of a reasonable sized trip, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be seventy to ninety kilos in your sled, like so. It's it's a lot of weight, and you know, if you're on very icy ground, it's easy because it just runs along behind you. But I mean, once you're in deep snow, I mean, it's just absolute purgatory. I mean, certainly there was days on Lake Baikal, like I said, we did 40 kilometers days. Mm. There was other days we hit deep snow and we did five kilometers, you know. Mm. And that was going for 12 hours as hard as we could go mm. and only making five kilometers distance. So, I mean, the conditions and, uh, you know, the conditions and the weather can, can just affect you so much and slow everything down. So it's, it's, it's very different to mountains. Like a lot of the polar stuff, I would describe it very different to mountains in the sense that, like with a mountain, you know, you climb, if you're climbing anything, with climbing Everest, whatever, you go, you know, you go from base camp mm-hmm. up to advanced base camp, you spend the night, so you come back down, you rest for a few days, and then you go back up and you go up to camp one, and you, but you have these rest periods in between. In between. Yeah. The problem with a lot of the polar stuff is you just can't, you know, uh, because 
you just don't know what's going to happen. So rest days are something that really has to be forced on you. You know, I mean, we've never, t- I've never taken a rest day unless it was forced on us, mm. um, and that's because the wind is just too strong to to be able to move. You know, mm. um, so the polar stuff is a lot more physical um, and mental as well, in the sense that it's just so. It's just relentless, like, it's absolutely just relentless. I mean, certainly once you get into the very cold environments, like up in, in the North Pole and stuff, it, it's just a different, it, it's such a different animal. I mean, you just can't, it's very hard to explain it to people how difficult it is um, in, in the sort of cold you're experiencing up there, you know? Mm. Well, speaking about the cold, uh, Mike, uh, the adventures that we've obviously been chatting about so far, they all have that one thing in common, the extremely cold conditions, but none quite compare to those when it comes to the North Pole. I mean, you're getting temperatures there of negative 55 degrees centigrade. How do you prepare your body to handle that coldness that, that, that chills your bones? Because from what I understand, you, you have to bulk up quite a bit before you go on the expedition in order to sustain that over that long period of time. Is, is that correct? Yeah, I, I suppose the... the First time I was up north, we went up to a place called Callowis, um, which is kind of like the major Inuit um, town, um, and then you fly from there further up to Resolute, and then from Resolute up to the North Pole. But like certainly the first time I was up in in, in Callowis, it was like kind of minus forty, and minus forty is cold, mm-hmm. and, it, and it certainly is very very cold. Um, uh, so our first trip up there, but yeah, it's cold, and I think the I think the thing you know a lot of people will say yeah I've been a minus forty, but I've been minus forty in Chicago, so <laughs> I run out for half an hour and I'm in the cold, or I'm skiing on a hill and it's minus thirty. <laughs> but you go in, go in from the heat. I, I suppose that the hard part on on the big trips is you don't get that breather. You you're basically you know you you're basically out working all day. You're you're trying to keep your sweat down so that this, you know it doesn't freeze in your clothes, and then you're trying to you've got to stop and put clothes on you. The minute you stop on that stuff, you've got to get clothes on you as quick as you can. Extra gloves, extra jackets, everything, and then you're trying to build put a tent up, and then you're trying to light a stove in the tent. Mm. So the cold is, is like minus forty is hard, but like certainly when you take that next step up to. Like, like we, the minus 55, that's all we can ever quote because the te- thermometers that we had and the Japanese guy, Yeshu Agita, had mm. were only down to minus 55. So <laughs> it, it could have been a lot colder than that. Yeah. We just don't know. Um, but it, you can't explain it. It's just impossible to explain it. I mean, yeah. the, the difference now, we, what, I suppose what we've done both times we've been up there um, is we've gone up for nearly a month beforehand wow. and tra- physically trained. And just being out in the cold. And that means just, you know, walking around town, walking to the shops, going out in the ice for a week, coming back in for a few days, go back out for three days. And just spending a lot of time out on the ice, outdoors, and just trying to acclimatize your body. You definitely can acclimatize a small bit. Mm-hmm. But, like, you can only acclimatize in, in a Callowit or Resolute, which is about minus 40. So that's cold. Yeah. And then you take that next leap up to Ward Hunt Island. And then, I mean, you get off the plane. I, I, I will never forget it the first time that we went up there getting off the plane and just standing there and, like, within 15 minutes the plane is gone and you're looking at the plane taking off and you're going, what am I after doing, mm. you know? What have I after doing? Because <laughs> that cold is just straight through to your bones. Like, yeah. it is just savage. Like, And, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, a lot of people talk about the South Pole and they talk about different things. And, you know... There's no comparison. There's just no... Com- I mean, I got an invitation la- Was it this year or last year? That's a good question. Was it, anyway, <laughs> in the last 12 months. Sometime yeah. in the last 12 months to go on a trip to the North Pole. Um, they had, they, a, a couple of pairs of teams had hired in a, a, um, a plane. 
because you can't get flights into the North Pole at the minute. The scientific, all the, basically Ken Boric was offering all the flights. They've stopped the flights. So, the, mm. so getting there is, is virtually impossible now. <laughs> but they had hired a plane outside of this Ken Boric, um, uh, another private company to come in and do it. And I got an offer to go on the, on the trip. Um, and it was just the price I got was just, it was just, it was unbelievably low. And I was kind of going, mm, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And I was very, very tempted. And I looked at the guys, that, there was two expeditions basically going in. So I was going to pay, tear, pay, pair up with one guy and there was another team. And I looked at them and, but none of them had been up in that cold. Now, huge experience. I mean, these guys are phenomenally experienced guys. And, you know, I'm not going to take from them. Phenomenally experienced guys, brilliant thing. Mm-hmm. But the one thing, I sat at the desk here and I was just looking, and I was, and I was you know, looking them up online and looking what they'd done. And I mean, you know, like there's one or two of them have done more, a lot more stuff than I, even I've done, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly on polar stuff they've done more. Mm-hmm. And huge experience, but they had never experienced that cold. And I, 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 like I nearly cried making the phone call to say, look, I'm not going to go, yeah. you know. And I just said no. And, and I, you know, you always question yourself. Then mm-hmm. if you say no to something, did I do the right thing? Did I not do the right thing? Mm-hmm. I mean, they got to the ice. They spent one day on the ice. Mm-hmm. And one guy got 10 frostbitten fingers. Wow. Whatever. You know, there was an instance. He ended up with 10 frostbitten fingers. And they all got flown back out. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's so severe. It is just. And, and that happens with a lot of expeditions. Up there. Certainly the second time we were up there, we were getting picked up off the ice and there was another team had been dropped in. There was three of them had been dropped in the day before, mm. uh, three Norwegians and they all came out with frostbite the next day. Wow. One day, one day on the ice. I mean, it's just is absolutely savage up there and you're, you're, you're just watching yourself the whole time. I mean, it's like, you know, every time you stop for a break and you get moving again, first thing you do is check each other's, you know, your face mask, you check your gloves, make sure all your zips are up because you're so cold, you mm. can't tell is, is a zip open or closed or what's going on with it. You know, um, and, and that it's just yeah, it's impossible to explain. I mean, you wake yeah. up in the morning and you've got two sleeping bags on you, and I mean, you're wearing all your clothes, and the whole tent is just covered in frost. And the first thing you have to do is you got to get out of that sleeping bag. Mm. You got to get out of your two sleeping bags and take all of the equipment out of the tent, and then get a brush and then brush all of the ice out of the tent and put it out. And then it's like that's minus fifty. You've been in, in you know in a reasonably <coughs> sorry warm state all night. Mm. And then you're doing this in the morning. That was probably my the one thing I hated the most was that that first thing in the morning because you're just kind of semi comfortable, and then you've got to get out and take all of this, brush the ice out. That takes about by the time you've got everything out and back in, it's about thirty forty minutes. And then you have to try and light your stoves because if you light the stoves, you're going to melt all the stuff inside yeah. the, in the tent, <laughs> and then it all freezes into your clothes. Um, uh, that's probably the hardest part for me. That that yeah. that actual that morning ritual is just oh, it's <laughs> horrific. You know, and you spend about, you know, it's like when you're up there, like I had, I remember the first time going up, I mean, I had, I had enough playlists to do me for like about three years. And I never listened. We were on the ice for like over 20 days. I never once listened to a piece of music because you're listening for polar bears is one thing. Yeah. Um, and you're just all the time just so concentrating on your own body and the cold, making sure your fingers are moving, making sure your toes are moving, and just moving all the time and trying to read the ground and see what the ground is doing mm-hmm. and just following it. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very different expedition up there. It's so difficult, you know. Wow. Well, 
I literally have shivers down my spine, but <laughs> I, I don't want to come across as being negative anyway, Mike, by yeah. saying that the expeditions to the North Pole were failures. I mean, I believe it's unfair to say that considering the hell that you were going through and as you just described right now, let's just say the two attempts were incomplete. So 2012, yeah. it was due to the failed shared logistics and in yeah. 2014, it was because of injury. Do you ever find yourself now looking back and thinking, if I just did this differently, I would have completed the expedition? Um, I think you're always going to, you know, you can always look back at stuff um, and say that. I mean, there's lots of things in my life I would look back and say, yeah, if I did this differently or that differently. But then if you did something differently, you don't know what the outcome of that's going to be. So, um, yeah, I don't, yeah, with a lot of, I think with trips and stuff like that, I mean, uh, I think I think with a lot of adventures, uh, certainly me and a lot of the people I would know, I mean, I can just give you one example. I, I remember myself and Claire were walking up and we were coming off the ice mm-hmm. in Lake Baikal. We'd just finished the trip. We've been on the ice for 20-odd days. Um, it was a tough trip because of the weather was really bad that year. Mm-hmm. And we're already having a conversation. We're not even off the ice onto the road and we're already having a conversation about the next trip, you know? <laughs> mm. Um, so I think, you know, and I think, I think if you, you know, there's always, you're always going to learn something. I mean, that's the way I look at things is like, you know, look, is there things I'm going to do different the next time I go? Yeah, there is. Um, it's the stuff I'll improve on. Yeah. But that, again, that's experience. And I think, I think that's with anything in life. I mean, you know, one of the, the funny things I, I, and I keep banging on about this at the moment is I think the problem now where we are in the world is adventure is so available to people that everybody wants to experience the adventure, mm. but they don't, want to, they don't want the risk that go with it, and they don't want to serve what I would call the apprenticeship. It's like, you know, you want to, you know, I spent a long time learning lots of things. Now, you can do a lot of that stuff a lot faster now because you can look up the internet and find stuff. But, I mean, back in the days when we were doing rescue and learning to climb, mm-hmm. we were, like, standing at the bottom of a cliff with a book, you know, and going through pictures. that we, Somebody had been on holidays in France and bought a book, and we couldn't read it, but we could see the pictures. And we're going, oh, all right, you do that. Okay, that makes sense. And, you know, that's the way we learned to climb, whereas now there's so many climbing courses and there's so many things. But I, I think, yeah, it's, I think that whole, the whole adventure world is just change so much you know yeah. it's, it's it's very different from when i started you know yeah well physically mike we, we can only imagine how tough it is out there on the north pole but what about mentally how do you keep yourself motivated when things don't go according to plan or or you get a setback like when you cover a distance of two and a half miles one day you go to sleep wake up and you find yourself gone three miles backwards because of that moving ice how, how do you keep yourself from losing it psychologically yeah the, the, certainly up at the north pole that's that that is one of the absolute horror stories of that place is that you can just lose so much ground yeah. and um, I, I think it's something you just got to have in your head that it's happening you know and and you, you just deal with it I mean it, it is certainly it is absolutely so demoralizing I mean you wake up in the morning and you've gone backwards I mean I mean it's just heart-wrenching like because you have to work in so hard the day before because up there like it's not like just it's not like being in the south pole where you're skiing mm. on flat ground mm. you're climbing over blocks that could be like a 10 meter high block wall in front of you and you've got to try and drag your sled up that and then try and get it, it you can't just leave it float off down the other side in case you break it so you've got to try and ne- negotiate it down the other side and then move for 10 meters and start the same process all over again and, yeah. and, and it's just so difficult so that's hugely demoralizing but I mean certainly once you start getting through that I mean the, se- the first time that we had an absolute horror story with that stuff I mean it was just a nightmare but the second time we went in there it was actually quite interesting it's, we just learned to read the ice better and uh, you know we did a bit more homework with different things we went and we visited the meteorological and, and ice measuring um, 
organization in Canada, and we went to see them, and we sat down with them, and we just looked at a whole load of satellite imagery, you know, and mm. we looked at routes, and we looked at different things, and then we got on the ice, and we just read the ice differently, and we were making, we were so fast the second time. It was actually frightening how fast we were. I, I you know, I think we were shocking ourselves at how quick we were moving, you know. Um, so, look, you learn from it, and, and you've got to take from it, but, I mean, yeah, it, I, I think that's the big problem with adventure is, you know, it, it, it all looks very... Um, it, it all looks very um, glamorous from the outside with the great photographs and stuff. But, I mean, it's, you can't take photographs in the White House. You can't take photographs <laughs> when it's really bad weather. It's very hard to do that. So yeah. it all, the great shots always look good because they're the ones you share. But, I mean, there's lots of slogging and there's lots of, mm. you know, 8, 10, 12-hour days where you're, where you're just bloody, you know, just dragging your arse, like for want of a better word, and you're just <laughs> looking at your skis and all you can see is your skis and you're trying to keep plodding and, you know, the weather's so bad, you, even though there's somebody there with you, you're actually in your own space. So yeah. I think there's an amount of being comfortable with yourself as well and and just, help, you know, trying to motivate each other because some days, you know, one person's going to be down more than the other and it's kind of trying to step in and be the happy person that day or, you know, motivate things. And, you know, it's having a routine. I think the routine mm-hmm. is the big part of it too because, you know, you can... So, it's so much pressure that you can, you know, it's very easy to follow with teammates on expeditions, which is, you know, a lot of people come home from expeditions and never speak ever again. <laughs> but it's about having a really good routine yeah. and getting into a routine that you both understand. And like tonight, somebody, one person cooks, tomorrow night the other person cooks, or somebody does breakfast and someone else does dinner, and, or I cook, you know, mm-hmm. like simple things like water. I mean, that's mm-hmm. up to about, there's about six hours of melting water a day up in the North Pole. Wow. Just, just melting water, mm-hmm. nothing else. Um, so that's a huge responsibility and, you know, it, it's taking turns at that, you know, and, you know, it's about food, it's about, you know, having the right food. If you've got the right food, it makes life easier. If you've got the right sleeping bags, it makes life easier. Um, if you get your cooking and getting, getting set up to light your cooker fast and stuff like that, you know, these are all the things that if you can get the stove lit and fast, you know, there's a huge moment of joy and it's great happiness and there's a bit of heat and it's everyone. Mm-hmm. But like, if you're 15 minutes later and you still can't get the stove going, mm-hmm. then it gets, starts getting frustrating and that frustration is just going to run on for the rest of the evening so you know skis breaking different things like so many different things can happen your tent poles breaking and it's those things that bring the stress but i think that a big part of it too is having the right team members i mean certainly um team members is is, is so important and i learned that lesson the very hard way Mm. on a trip to south georgia where you know i put a team together where we where we um, sailed from the Falkland Islands. We flew with the RAF out of the UK to the Falkland Islands. Then we sailed from the Falkland Islands to South Georgia. Mm-hmm. And then we were to do a crossing. And there was one person I brought on the team. And I, it was a mistake on my part. I left that minute. Mm-hmm. I brought him for financial reasons because, you know, the trip, it's, it's, it's an expensive trip. Yeah. And an extra person just broke up the cost that bit more, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that person just was, you know, I knew everybody except that one person, mm-hmm. and nobody knew that person. And it just turned into be an absolute nightmare. I mean, it, it took from, you know, a trip that we should have been to, you know, if you look back at the memories of that trip, you know, the highlights of huge things that we did and, and you know, landing to, you know, into, it, landing into there and, and seeing where Tom Green and, and Shackleton and these guys, you know, stayed, where they landed their boat, the mm-hmm. ground they crossed and stuff like that. It should all have been those memories. Unfortunately, it's not, and the memories were dictated because somebody else was an ass, you know, yeah. and you just can't take that away from me. So, and, you know, I broke my own golden rule in that I said I'd never bring someone on a trip that I didn't know or know well. Um, 
and, and I think there's some trips I would go on with certain people and there's other trips I would go on with different people you know that kind yeah, of way it's, yeah. I think different people are suited to different trips and, and different personality types as well I mean the, the problem I suppose with a lot of adventure people is they're all very strong minded people and very much individualist you know mm. um, and that can create its own problems too you know mm. um, you know, it's, it, you know everyone has to kind of find their place in it and you, you know you need to be comfortable with each other that you can have a row and, and still get on afterwards or you know you can have a chat if there's a problem coming up or you can see a problem developing that you can discuss it and it's 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 being it's, it's about ha- it, team selection I think is probably the most important thing you'll do team and equipment team equipment and food you know if you can get those things right the rest of it will all work out um, you know about having the right team together so that's that, that you know it was a mistake I made mm-hmm. and I've got to put my hands up for it you know and you know it just yeah it's yeah only ever go on a trip with someone you definitely know is yeah. going to be <laughs> um so that's important yeah you know? it's very interesting how, how having that as you say the right team members the routines that can really help ease that psychological pressure when you are out there in the north pole which is one of the most remote places on earth and you will obviously know that mike having experienced it twice now how do you weigh up the risks that are involved with that, you know, where something has become so technically challenging as that one? Is there ever any fear or concern that creeps in that you might find yourself second-guessing yourself, should I really be doing this expedition because it could be my last? That has very rarely happened to me. It did happen once up in the North Pole, but that was due to ice movements. Mm-hmm. And, but, I, like, I, I would look at the likes of the North Pole and I would look at, you know, Patagonia and Greenland and these things. I mean, yeah, there, there, there is an element of danger, but I think a lot of that, again, is back down to team selection, experience, having the right equipment with you. It's like making sure you've got a tracker, making sure you've got a sat phone, making sure, you know, we put systems in place where, you know, we have, we, we've got to communicate, what we call a communication ladder. I've got somebody in Ireland who I ring every, every day. Mm-hmm. So that person has to hear from me every single day. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that person then is assessing me, can assess me on the phone, how I'm talking or, or whoever's with me is, is making the phone call, how you're talking, how you're behaving, mm-hmm. what you're saying. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's, having that, it's having that whole system in place. I think a lot of people seem to forget that part of it where there's a lot of other stuff goes on in the background. It's like making sure that, you, you know, you put your tracker on every day so people can fucking track you, mm-hmm. so people can see what you're doing and to follow all the aspects. Of it. But, like, I, this year I drove from from Dingle to Cape Town. Mm-hmm. And I would describe that as probably three times, if not five times more dangerous than the North Pole. <laughs> wow. And that hasn't got to do with, it hasn't got to do with anything. It's got to do with people. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, people are dangerous. <laughs> it's, I mean, I know there's a big lump of ice can fall down on top of you or, you know, the ice can start moving around you and you can end up in the water. But, you know, these are things that you, you know, you hopefully prepare for and you've done enough practice when those things happen that you just kick into, you kick into, you know, automatic mode and start doing things and, and, and make things happen, you know. Um, look, there's always going to be risk and there's no, there's no denying that. But, I mean, mm-hmm. certainly I, I, I came home from, after the trip from Cape Town um, this year in, in, in May, mm-hmm. and it's probably the first time I've come home from a trip where I, like, I've definitely been on trips where adventurers have been very close to, to, to possibly, yeah, you know, to possibly dying, I suppose you don't like to discuss too much, but I mean, mm-hmm. I've had some very, very close calls over the years, be it paramotoring or paragliding or on expeditions, but I mean, I certainly came home from, from Africa, and I sat down, and I kind of went, man, that was too close, <laughs> that was just too close, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, it's army with guns or people with guns and you know that was i think that 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 was one that was 
interesting for me in the sense that you know mm. um you know the dangers weren't the dangers weren't the journey or the you know there's, an, there's obviously like a huge element of danger in the journey like we went down West Africa so it's a different place to go but I mean certainly it was it was the interactions with people that were the most dangerous yeah. part rather than the actual trip itself you know yeah, wow well on that same vein of uh, speaking about fears and concerns and and worries is there one for you though Mike a worry that uh, you might never get to conquer the North Pole for whatever the reason may be does it ever play on your mind um it doesn't to be honest with you i mean like there's you know there's so many different trips out there i want to do anyway you know mm-hmm. um like i've you know i suppose i've uh, look it's like climbing everest it's like climbing anything i mean everest has never appealed to me for some strange reason i mean it just hasn't like you know mm-hmm. um lots of my friends have climbed it i've got a huge amount of friends who have climbed it and stuff like that mm-hmm. um it just never appealed to me for some strange reason. I just don't know why. Um, but I think there's just so many trips out there that I want to do anyway, you know, and there's so many parts of the world I want to see and experience and do things. So, I mean, my problem always is, is and anyone who knows me is that my brain just doesn't stop. Like, so there's always three plans on the go at one time, like, you know, um, mm. none of them might come off, but then something else will pop up and that'll happen, you know. So, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I, for me, it's not. I, I mean, if a trip doesn't work out, it's like, yeah, I've had a really good time. I've got, you know, great memories from it i've got whatever and you know it was it was another life experience and another you know it was it was whatever a month or two months or three months of of experiencing something new and 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 experiencing something different you know so yeah i always look at it as kind of yeah it's move on to the next thing and let's see what comes up next you know yeah good to know well let's move on now from the ice project from the climbing and the tracking and another activity that that adds just to your persona of being a true adventurer is uh, your passion for power paragliding um you took this up in 2009 and in that same year you became one of the first people to actually fly across the irish sea and then five years after that you became one of the first to fly the length of ireland how does paragliding compare to the adventures that you have done on the ground i think it's very different so i started out i started paragliding i suppose maybe 20 odd years ago yeah, yeah. um maybe 25 years ago, i started paragliding and i just i just love that in the sense that you know it's just the freedom of of flying and you know walking up a hill now having said in ireland it's not great because <laughs> you can walk up a hill a lot of times before you get to fly off you know yeah. but um it's just that whole freedom in the air and and stuff and i think i got frustrated with paragliding in the sense that i'd walked up so many hills carrying all the gear and then the wind changes direction or the wind dies or something happens and then you think so i took up uh, paramotoring and um yeah that was interesting in the sense that you know i started learning to paramotor here in ireland with a guy and i'd only managed to get about two days training done and um the next thing I bought a par- bought myself a paramotor. The next thing I bought myself a para a para a para um, a paramotor. There's a special glider for paramotors. It's yeah. slightly different than a paramotoring one. And I had bought that, and I flew in it a couple of times. And um, I was actually up working in Northern Ireland on a movie, mm-hmm. um, a Natalie Portman movie. And I just looked before I was heading up. I looked at the weather, and I went, "Oh my God, that weather is absolutely cracking for." A fly across the ocean. I didn't even know how it had been done before. I knew nothing about it. So I rang a guy called Carl Fowler, <laughs> who had sold me the glider. But I'd actually never flown with, with Carl. I actually just bought a glider off him. But I knew he was a good pilot, you know. Um, and I said, look, any interest in, any interest in, um, in having a crack of flying across the IRC? Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah. So I, there was a guy called Sean McGarry up in Northern Ireland who held the, the Irish speed record on a boat. Mm-hmm. And I knew Sean through rescue. So I rang Sean. I said, any chance you'd give us ground cover or boat cover, like, uh, if we do the flight? Mm. 
and he did, and it all came together in the space of two days. And wow. the next thing, I'm, I, 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 t- I turned up for, for work in the morning on the film set, got everything rolling, left the film set, went down the road, met Carl, and we drove up, uh, up near the old, uh, up near Fairhead, mm-hmm. and we took off from Fairhead, flew across, went across the Mullican Tire, landed on the other side, and stopped, went and got some spare fuel for the journey back, bought a bottle of water to get a receipt to prove we'd landed there, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we flew back, and I went back to work. Wow. And it, you know, it was just, it was kind of gone, and I kind of, it was actually, it was actually a very funny experience. It was kind of gone, and it was all over, and we, you know, we'd done it, and it was all done. And the next thing. We ended up, uh, we went to a flying festival in France, and it was absolutely a pantomime. Like, I mean, there's people coming up, shaking our hands, and, look, and I'm looking at people going, how do people know who I am? Because <laughs> like, this was kind of a big deal at the time. It was back at the start of paramotor. I mean, the guy's doing crazy stuff, like really crazy stuff now. But at the time, it was kind of, a, for want of a better word, a ballsy thing to do. Like, it was one thing to fly across, but to turn around and fly back again um, was seen to be fairly special. And both of us then got an invitation to fly to go down to Korea, the South, in South Korea, a place called Dejan, mm-hmm. where they were having this big scientific fair, and and they were, you know, they were promoting paramotoring as part of it. So, six of us from around the world. It was um, an English guy, a couple of French guys, American, and the two Irish, two Irish guys in the middle of it, like you know. Mm-hmm. And we're brought down by the the Korean, South Korean government, and you know, we were left, we were left to go off. Um, we participated in a competition with local guys, mm-hmm. and then at the end of it, you're not allowed to fly a paramotor over, you know, over houses or or any towns or cities or anything yeah. like that. But they actually gave us an hour of free run in the city uh-huh. with the paramotors. It was just absolutely nuts. I mean, it, it's actually on the thing on YouTube called Paramotor Swoopdown. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's about a five or six minute video of us in, in, in flying in Daejeon in South Korea, flying the streets. <laughs> I mean, we're down, we're flying under bridges where yeah. there's guys dragging in the water. We're flying over six lanes of traffic. We're flying around apartment buildings. We're waving at people in offices. It was just, it was crazy. Just nuts, you know? Um, so that, you know, it, it, I think sometimes when you're doing stuff, it, 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 it generates its own thing, you know, because yeah. you can, you know, that came about because of that. And then, you know, we, we get off, we do something else. And I think, you know, if, if you're, you know, for anyone that's out there doing adventure stuff for like that, I mean, I think just going out, going out and doing what you wanted to do. Like, I mean, I didn't make any big deal about, you know, that flying across the Irish Sea. We just went and did it. And yeah. just the rumor monger went off and it spread all over the place, you know, like lightning mm. that we had done it. But, you know, it was something I wanted to do. And I just went and did it for the love of it. And then I get, you know, a, a trip to Korea out of it. Like, you know, so it was great. Yeah, wow. Well, you touched on it there, Mike, talking about being on the movie set and then leaving to go do that uh, that stunt there. Our listeners who might be Star Wars fans are going to get a real kick out of this next one. I mentioned at the start that you are also a rescue consultant and you've worked on some big movies, but I didn't mention them. Well, you were the mountain safety team leader during the filming of Star Wars The Force Awakens and were the safety supervisor and expedition leader for The Last Jedi. Not to mention you also worked on uh, Mission Impossible 6 with uh, Tom Cruise there. I'm sure you get asked all the time, what was that like? But just to add to that, uh, how long were you on the set for each of those movies and did anything go wrong in any of the stints? Uh, no, I, well, I the first one, the, the first one we were on Skellig Island and that was like, it was two weeks set up and it was only three days, three days of actual filming, so it was quite short. Okay. But on eighth, when we came into the second one, we did uh, two weeks, one year. The next year, I worked in it for six months here in Ireland. Wow. And then I went to Bolivia with them for a month working in Bolivia. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's just it's a, whole, it's a whole other world. It's a whole other industry. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's amazing to see. 
I suppose it's interesting to be in there looking at everything that goes on and meeting. You know, the, you, you get to meet everybody from the the guys driving the cars to, mm-hmm. we, you know, we met all the stars. We hung out in the pubs drinking with them and stuff like that. And it, it's it's very interesting to, I suppose, to delve into that world. I you know, it's not a full time job for me. It's something mm-hmm. I delve in and out of. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly since then I've worked on there's a new film here in Ireland called Artemis Fall, which is going to be like you know, hopefully the new Harry Potter series. Mm-hmm. We got to work on Mission Impossible Six up in Norway, so mm-hmm. we're kind of getting a reputation for the fix it guys and certainly the 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 difficult access work which is what i want to do but and that's what that's what we did here we like a lot of the sets we were involved in a lot of the set building here in ireland because a lot of it was on on things like keown shabale which like a 200 meter cliff and we built we recreated skellig on top of that cliff Hmm. um and some of that went out over the cliff like so that's obviously was obviously our forte in that we were able to get in there build all the base and then we worked with the team on on building the village um we did all the rope safety for it we did all the work with the stars so yeah it's very interesting it's a very difficult i mean it again it's one of those things that sounds phenomenally glamorous i tell you mm-hmm. it's i i wouldn't wish it on anyone that the film industry is hard hard work i mean <laughs> you know it's you know you've got 10 12 hour days in the build up to it and then once filming kicks in i mean it's 12 14 16 20 hour days every day like mm-hmm. you know um they work really really hard and that includes you know a lot of the actors and stuff as well i mean yeah. The, the efforts they make and the, the, the work they put in is huge, you know. Um, and again, a lot of the stuff that was done with Star Wars, it's, it's primarily done with um, a lot of, it's a stunt team that do a lot of the stuff. It's like the actors okay. do some of the stuff. Yeah. But I mean, I was, I, I do have to take my hat off to um, to Tom Cruise after watching him on Mission Impossible mm-hmm. 6. I mean, he does all his own stunts. Uh he, uh, yeah, he's just a different league altogether. He's just, he's, he really is a different league altogether. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, to watch him in action and to watch what he does, um, yeah, it, I, I would take my hat off to that man. I tell you, he's, he's a brave man, that's for sure, you know, he's, he's ballsy, you know. Yeah. It's interesting, you know. Wow, very whole different world to the adventure side of your, of your life, but equally interesting. Now, Mike, recently you were out in the desert somewhere in the Middle East working on another project. Now, without giving too much of the details away for that, because I know it's still a bit of a secret, what's yeah. been keeping you busy over these last few months? Um, so, yeah, so the last few months, really, that project I was working on, originally I was working on, on, on transport and stuff on it, because it was, like, in excess of 300 vehicles involved, and then I swapped over to the... Um, to working on a helicopter, so I imported a helicopter into Jordan, and uh, we re- got that rebuilt. And then I worked with a with a heli heli team out there uh, flying on that. So, yeah, it was it's a very different world. Yeah, it's one of those ones that yeah I can't say a whole lot about it. It'll, it as I mentioned, it'll be on the big screen in time, you know. But uh, yeah, it's, it's it's different. I mean, like you know, like that's a big part of what I do as well. I suppose the adventure, but I suppose another part that. I suppose I don't get into a lot or mention a lot is like I'm very heavily involved and I like to use my experience of just organizing trips and stuff to do other things and like over the last number of years like something I've I'm very much into this idea of giving back and 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 helping others so and that's that, that's actually carried me on some great little adventures as well in the sense that, you know, we've built a home of hope up in Chernobyl. Uh, we built independent living units there. I, I, I designed and actually funded completely and built a uh, orphanage in wow. in Arusha. I went out. I spent. I spent. I took when Ian McKeever died on Kilimanjaro. That time, I mm-hmm. went out and took over the charity for the six months to finish off the work they had. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, I wanted to do something with it. So while I was there in my downtime, 
I, you know, basically worked with the, the Kilimanjaro Achievers to get funding in place for it. And then we designed and completely built a, a 32-bed orphanage, you know. Mm. And then in the last year or two, um, we did a lot of stuff actually in Nepal just after the earthquake. We helped a lot of people. We got a lot of funding together there. I put about 25 grand together. Just put a shout out to mm. all my friends and people I know. And actually sold, I sold my... Um, my Star Wars memorabilia, my jacket and my hat and stuff uh, to raise funds for that. And we, um, we, you know, we helped a village there called Mejev, which we helped that to, to, you know, basically just get shelter in for the winter because obviously the monsoon was coming. And then we raised more funding after that. We, we, we built a school there, you know. So I think that's a very important thing for a lot of people who are into the whole outdoors and adventure thing. Like we go and we visit these countries and we utilize them and stuff like that. And I think it's very important to look at how you give back um, sometimes. like So for me, the giving back is very important. And, and I'm an ambassador for the, the Himalayan Stove Project, where we basically buy stoves and we give them to families. And it reduces their fuel bill like by, you know, 75%. And it also helps with... It also helps, you know, with the whole thing of illness and stuff, because like mm-hmm. a lot of these people are cooking over open fires and stuff, so there's huge respiratory issues and stuff there. Mm-hmm. And you know, just these these things improve. And even even from the point of view of you know the the the, the environment and stuff like that, like these people are cutting down trees and stuff, mm-hmm. which then is causing more erosion, which creates another problem. So the less timber they use the less erosion, the less problems further down the valley. Like So, mm. you know, these are things for me that are very important. So, like, while the adventuring is very important, I probably have as many stories about the projects I've done, um, which I think, you know, a lot of people who are into the whole outdoors and, and, and adventure scene, you know, they have that skill set. You know, they're, they're able to organize a trip. They're able to organize a holiday. You know, so if you, mm-hmm. if you can do that, you can also do the other the other side of it too, which is something you know you know that's something that yeah. we've done like for a long time. And you know it's about unique ways. We pushed a, a car, a three wheel car, from Dingle to Dublin mm. over so. ten days as a fundraiser, and we ran a half marathon in Dublin to use as a fundraiser. So there's lots of different ways of doing things, and mm. you know that can become as much fun as sometimes it's going on a trip. You know, in in yeah. the sense you know you you get to give back and you get to 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 see what you can what you can create by using your skills you know yeah. from from your your experience you know yeah well good on you mark brilliant uh, and keep up that fantastic work uh, that that you're doing on the charitable side of your life well as we wrap up the podcast mike this year you embarked on another major escapade that will see you attempt to reach the world's six poles of inaccessibility which are geographical points that uh, represent the most remote places on each of, of the given regions you've called it the poles project so i see a theme yeah. busy forming here <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm lazy on the marketing side of things, you know. Yeah. Well, you are aiming to be the first person in history to make it to all of these six points. Briefly, what are those points, Mike? And are you planning any for 2019, or will you be shifting your focus back to the ice project? Um, so, but yeah. So basically, it was, it, the reason I, that came about was just it, it, the, the cost of doing some of the ice stuff is is so prohibitive, mm-hmm. it, you know, sometimes and unless you can get big sponsors involved. So, and then some trips get obviously cancelled because of weather. So I, I, I came up with this Poles project as, something, as a kind of a backup so that if something didn't work out with the ice project, mm-hmm. it gave me a backup if I had the time already yeah. off or, you know, I, or something wasn't going to work out for a year, I could do something else. So, and, that, it, you know, I, just, it, I was looking for something that was just a bit different and something that, you know, was something I could chase personally. And it was, it was, it was just something, yeah, something to give me, you know, put all my skills together in kind of logistics and figuring out stuff and then yeah. trying to make that work. So, and yeah, so basically, yeah, the first one was quite easy because I was in, I was in America for, I was in America for, um, 
for meetings. I was a meeting in New York and I had one in LA and I said, mm, I don't think I'm going to fly across, I'm going to drive across. So I drove across America, which obviously is very straightforward. <laughs> So for the first part, I hired a car. The second part, I was on local buses. Uh, you know, it was just an absolute calamity. I ended up, yeah. I ended up getting into into the area where all the drugs and all the gangs are and stuff, and and and, and being in that area and trying to get out of there as quick as it was probably the first time in my life I've actually left an area as quick as I could mm-hmm. because of just absolute complete fear. I really thought I was in trouble. You know, yeah. um, it's just so dangerous there. You know, so that so that was you know South America was was again relatively straightforward. Um, and then we went to Africa this year already mm-hmm. um now the pla- we had to go to, we had to hit a point called obo which is the central african republic and it's a fairly big hot spot it's actually one of, it's actually most people don't even realize this but obo was one of the biggest refugee camps in the world at the minute there's in excess of half a million people there and mm-hmm. i don't think anybody even knows about it you know i know about it because i've researched it you know mm-hmm. um and we had been heading down to go there, and, the, and I had been speaking. I'd actually made contact with a guy in the UN who was doing the, the transport logistics for the Central African Republic, and we were about a week out from kind of heading towards him, and he basically said, forget it, don't come in here, we're after getting attacked. So their food convoy had been attacked, and they had managed to fight off the rebels, and the rebels then went to the nearest village and killed 80 people, you know. So it's just a different world, and that kind of diverted our trip, so we, we, we ended up missing out Nobo, and, but we still did the full crossing of, of Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the kind of the big ones that are left to do with that is Australia's obviously very, very straightforward. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, it's a very simple trip. <laughs> um, Eurasia is basically to, to come, I'm either going to come from Beijing or Hong Kong. Um, the point is actually up in northern China, so it's back into there, up into Kazakhstan, Mongolia, Siberia and all the way back to Dingle. Mm-hmm. The plan is to sh- I'll ship a car out to Beijing or, or to Hong Kong mm-hmm. and then drive all the way back to Dingle. And then the last one is the um, is on the South Pole. Um, yeah. And that's, that's actually an interesting one because there's a great debate down there. There's actually three points um, now marked uh, on, on Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them has been reached. I don't think the other two have been reached. So that's kind of um, that's a kind of a bigger project, and, and I'm kind of working. I actually hopefully have a meeting in, in London next week about that. But it's it's trying to to figure out, you know, the the, the, the you know, like, I mean, obviously some of them are straightforward enough. Obviously, Antarctica is absolutely crazy money, mm-hmm. and it's trying to figure out a way of making that work. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, either getting sponsors on board or, you know, I've got some other ideas on, on how to make it work. Um, and I'm just researching that kind of stuff at the minute. So I'm always kind of looking, I always have one or two trips kind of floating in the background um, that I'm looking at, you know. So, yeah, so I, I would say 2019, um, early in 2019, I'll probably will do Australia and I'll see how the year is going work-wise then and maybe towards the latter half of the year, look at trying to, trying to ship the car out to Beijing. And, and drive that back from from Beijing, you know, or Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hoping to get, I might get one to two done next year. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. Well, Mike, I could spend literally the next 24 episodes just chatting to you and hearing more from all your wonderful adventures. But uh, thank you for just sharing the few uh, of your experiences with our listeners in this episode of the Hard as Nails podcast and giving them a, a bit of a glimpse into your unbelievable life as an ultimate adventurer. We wish you all the best uh, for the ice and the pole projects and everything else. And we look forward to having you back on the podcast sometime in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time.